Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. We are back a week early with The Graveyard Heart. This is a novella by Roger Zelazny. And this story was originally published in the magazine Fantastic in 1964. We've read it in this comprehensive collection of Zelazny's short fiction that's been published by the New England Science Fiction Association Press in six really beautiful, really awesome hardcover volumes that uh, have his complete short fiction, biographical material, essays that he wrote, interviews, all sorts of stuff. Really amazing, really impressive collection. Uh, We read this in the first volume, volume one, called Threshold. And of course, because this is a novella, we're going to do two separate episodes on it. This episode is the recap, and then we'll be back in a, a few days with a discussion episode. And the reason that we are back a week early doing these episodes is that one of our Patreon supporters has commissioned this extra episode for everyone. And we're very grateful for the commission, and we hope that you, the other listeners, are grateful for having these extra episodes this year as well. Uh, this was an awesome and really disturbing story, and I am extremely glad to have read it. Yeah, there's a lot to dig into with this story, and we'll cover as much of it as we can in our discussion <laughs> episode. Hopefully not make it uh, super, super long and, and tedious, but uh, we'll cover all the main stuff that is happening in the story. It's really great. But this same supporter, is extremely generous supporter, has commissioned us to do two other Zelazny stories as well. One of those is The Keys to December, and we've already released that over on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast a few months ago. The other one will show up here again on Elder Sign in a few months. The Graveyard Heart is a really great story, uh, and it shares a lot with The Keys to December. So if you're interested in comparing them, I recommend going and listening to that episode on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Um, We'll try to do a little bit of it in the discussion, or at least as we go through the recap. It's a story that deals with the passage of time, what human's responsibility to the world is in some way, what work is, what life is what love is it's it's really got very much to it uh but what i just said doesn't even do it justice so glenn let's just get started with the recap yeah, this is a really big story. I mean, novellas by their nature are long. That's just literally what it's saying is it's kind of long, a uh, long short story, but shorter than a novel. But this one is jam packed full of stuff. Uh, I think just the sort of density of this novella is higher than for most novellas, except for Gene Wolfe novellas, I suppose. But we've got a lot of work to do. So let's get into it. It is the year 2000, or almost anyway. It's New Year's Eve, 1999, and Moore is at the party of the century, the party of the millennium, the party of parties. And this last title, Party of Parties, is capitalized. It seems to be a big deal uh, to us, the the, the reader here, though we're only a few sentences in and nothing is clear. Uh, This party is being broadcast to the crowds of people at Times Square, though the party is elsewhere. Moore, our our protagonist, our point-of-view character here, is dancing with Leota, nay Lilith, who sometimes whispers things to him in French, a language he doesn't know yet. And Moore is a jumble of emotions here. He's decided that he loves Leota since the last time he saw her, though that was over a year ago. But Moore is determined. He decided two years ago that he was going to fall in love and marry someone, uh, because he could finally afford to do so without altering his standards of living. And we get a great line about this. This is what Zelazny writes. Lacking a woman who combined the better qualities of Aphrodite and a digital computer, 
He had spent an entire year on safari, trekking after the spore if his star crossed. Uh, it's a weird, weird imagery there, a really fantastic line. And Moore wants Leota to slip away with him so they can be alone somewhere to talk here at the party to get away from the crowd. But Leota just says that she's bored and she wants to leave the party in half an hour. But until then, until those 30 minutes are up, she must be seen. She just says must, but there's a real sense of obligation here, and and we'll figure out what that's all about in a a few moments. Still, she does agree to see him again if he wants to go with her to the Bastille Day party in the New Versailles Dome. So uh, basically, she'll go on another date with him in seven months, which doesn't maybe seem like the best news to hear from someone you're romantically interested in, but still not the worst news either. The other emotional response that Moore is having to all of this, though, is is violent. It's, It's brutal. It's pretty ugly, and and this is something I want to talk about in the discussion because it was both disturbing and confusing to me. Uh, Let's let's break it down a little bit here. So when Leota won't slip away with Moore, won't walk away from the the crowd of the party here, Zelazny breaks down Moore's response this way. He writes, Primitive Moore, who had spent most of his life dozing at the back of civilized Moore's brain, rose to his haunches then. With a growl, civilized Moore muzzled him, though, because he did not wish to spoil things. So Something maybe Freudian is going on in the conception of more here, a kind of id and superego, or maybe id and ego, something going on there. I'm sure you'll have something to say about it, Brandon. Uh, But there are some other violent impulses in this opening scene as well. I'm going to let you tell us about those, Brandon. But also, I am curious, really curious about what you thought was going on at this point in the the story, because I was pretty confused at this kind of section break here. Yeah, you're right. This opening is really packed with information, but doesn't really offer us a lot of context we also get a lot of language of like infection and petri dishes, you know, suggesting like bacterial colonies as well, describing the masses of people. Moore feels infected by Leota's breath on his collar, which is an image we'll see return at the end of the story. I mean, we'll see a Christmas party or a New Year's party also return at the end of the story. But this type of language of infection combined with the violent impulses present in this primitive more really suggests a love sickness to me on Moore's part and his response to Leota being tolerant of that love but not really responding to it in a way that will quell his inner sort of caveman and that's really what I see going on here you're you're, you're right to point out that it's a, an id and superego sort of situation but I think Zelazny's looking more at the sorts of uh, involuntary drives and thoughts of somebody who's in this kind of romantic situation, really infatuation, as, as we'll come to see a little bit later on in the story. And it's interesting because we also learn that Moore has made this decision to fall in love, and then he's found some setting where he can accommodate that, and then he's really caught up in the passion of it. And and by passion here, I mean sort of the, the Greek sense of the word or the, the philosophical sense of the word where he is like a leaf blowing in the wind. He's put himself in a situation where he's no longer able or willing to exert his own will or force. He's become passive, you know, passion in that sense of passivity. And these parties are the setting where he can sort of be passive and let his love take over or blossom. But at this point, we don't really know enough about what's going on besides a hint that time is maybe moving differently for Leota than it is for Moore. And you pointed this out too, Glenn, that one of these ugly impulses that rears its head here is 
more referring to Leota as a child of Lilith. That nay Lilith here refers to the maiden name. So, you know, she is this child of Lilith. And Lilith is in, in Kabbalah and other Jewish mythology, a demon type figure. She's the first wife of Adam. She's an evil woman and she's meant to be a contrast to Eve. The point here is that this connotation is not a good one. And this nay Lilith, we're going to have a few other, you know, maiden names that pop up here. They're all put in parentheses as a kind of editorialization, and, and we'll be looking at more of those in the discussion. I also just want to point out here the presence of the Christmas tree here at the party, even though it's New Year's. This is referred to in the story here as that evergreen relic of Christmas past, but it's also a fake tree and it's fireproof. And I think this imagery is going to return a little bit later on in the story. So we'll want to keep the symbols in mind. This story relies a lot on symbolism as a mode of foreshadowing and storytelling. And we're going to get a lot of specifically religious symbolism here in this story. There is a lot of Christian stuff going on. And in fact, quite a bit with Christmas and New Year's and Twelfth Night, the sort of wintertime festivals of of Christianity. But we're going to get Buddhist references here as well. We are also going to get a lot of uh, ancient Mediterranean mythology as well, Greek and Roman mythology. That's going to pop up all through this story as well. It is heavily elusive, heavily symbolic as well. I do, before we go on, want to point out just a few more of this sort of weird bits of of violence, or at least violent thoughts that we get in this opening section. Even just the fourth line of this story is more, while he is dancing with Leota, thinking that he wants to crush her and tear her to pieces. Such a a weird line, but we get that kind of impulse, this impulse to do violence to her, uh, crops up three times in just this first section. It is something that is going to disappear as we get into the story, but it really confused me here. I, I, in fact, I wasn't sure even if we were switching points of view because of the ways Elasny is doing these first few lines with they're not complete sentences. They kind of begin with dashes. You know, this is a sort of thing that we saw him do in the Keys to December as well. It was ellipses more than dashes there, but this was really jarring to me. And I th- this is something we're going to want to take up in the discussion for sure. Absolutely. And I think we're looking at this, you know, really violent possessiveness or jealousy he knows that he's going to have to wait this time and he has this impulse to really destroy her rather than let her go and it is it is a violent form of uh infatuation of romantic love that you know Maybe we'll see become a theme of the story. We'll see if it comes up. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's carry on with it. Well, we'll see what we will see here. So we get some backstory now and, and also some explanation about the speculative premise of this story as well. Leota is a part of some organization known as The Set, and they use cryogenic freezing to sleep for months, sometimes for years at a time, only reviving themselves in order to attend parties. The why or how that works, we don't know yet, that we will get some more about this as we go. And so, while this right now is the second time that Leota and Moore have seen each other, for her, this has just been a few days, but for Moore, it's been a whole year. And so that explains sort of the the level of infatuation that he has uh, compared to her kind of indifference about this person she just met and hasn't really thought all that much about. He's going to pass seven months now until Bastille Day when they'll see each other again. But for her, that's actually just going to be tomorrow. What she's saying is that that's the next party she's going to wake up for. 
Now, naturally, this presents some obstacles or at least some complications for starting a romance. I think that probably this would be a deal breaker for me, but it is not for more. And one of the complications here is that the life she lives is weird. And so it's hard to relate to anyone outside of that life. Uh, really, she's in a clique and isn't interested in what is outside of that clique. And we actually see this in action at this party when another member of the set, uh, a man named William Unger, comes over and interrupts them. Them. And when Unger approaches them, when he when he gets there, Leota's whole demeanor changes for the, the positive. She's excited to see him. Uh, she has a physiological response to that, and she goes off with him. Uh, and it's clear that she has some kind of romantic involvement with him, and that she's just left more to go spend time with Unger. But still, more is determined here. He has made up his mind to fall in love with somebody, and now he has made up his mind to be in love with Leota. And now he has made up his mind to woo her and and really to win her from Unger, I suppose. And he has a plan. And the plan is this. He is going to join the set. Now, joining the set is no easy feat. There is an extremely rigorous process that he also doesn't really understand to begin with. But he does understand that he needs money. Green acres of presidents is, is how he thinks about it. Is another really great phrase. Uh, Zelazny, Zelazny is turning some great phrases in this story. I don't know that we'll have time to call attention to all of them, but it's a really well-written, well-crafted uh, piece here. Uh, but more also needs distinction. There are a lot of electrical engineers in the world who go through the standard 20-hour work week without distinction, so he's going to have to work hard in order to stand out. And uh, I do want to say here that, by the way, it is it is quaint that Zelazny thinks that people are going to work fewer hours in the future of the 1960s rather than significantly more, which is actually how things have turned out uh, right. since the year 2000. Uh, but anyway, Moore uses his ample spare time to invent things. And so by May, he has submitted 12 patents and is now the assistant division chief of the Sealock Division at Pressure Units Corporate. And that's enough for this part of the plan. So now it is time for the next thing that he needs, which is culture. He spends June learning French and improving his dancing, the two things that we've seen him do with Leota so far. And he also gives himself a literary education, complete with memorizing bits of plays from Restoration Period drama. Uh, he also improves his diction with the help of what's called a gab coach. Uh, there are a lot of fun details here in this kind of montage sequence uh, about what Zelazny thinks the year 2000 is going to be like. Some really great history of the future material. We don't actually have a single one of the things that he events here and it's a shame that we don't yeah it really is i mean you're right to point out that zelazny has this total sense of optimism about work-life balance in the future though maybe we'll see that he's also critical of what that might mean if the future does end up that way we see here that 20 hours a week is a normal amount of time for people to work and this really indicates that people's general needs are met by the society that they participate in uh you know i'm just going to run through some of this stuff so at the top of the society here at least as far as the general public concerned, is the set. They're also referred to as the sleepers. And I want to point this out because this is going to come up later, this this phrase of language. It's going to impact our discussion in some ways. And the, and the set spend the majority of their time in the cold bunk uh, and only come out to party. Leota is one of the beauties of the set. She's one of the stars of this set. So it's no wonder that Moore has fallen in love with her. It's really like falling in love with a celebrity. And this notion of the the set uh, really reminded me of a group of people that are members of a really 
difficult to get into Salon in In Search of Lost Time by, by Marcel Proust, who really just go and wear go to the meetings and wear nice clothes and sit around and there's nothing really interesting going on, but they capture so much of the imagination of the public because of their status in the world and how hard it is to join the little set. And I think this is something like what Selassny has in mind in this story as well. Uh, but back to Leota here. More calls her rather than Lilith. And I say more because he's the protagonist. We assume we're in his point of view, but we're not we're not really sure who the narrator of this story is. But at least Leota here is referred to rather than nay Lilith, nay Lorelei. And this is a reference to a, a siren type figure, a character who would lure fishermen to their doom i mean so whoever is really editorializing these maiden names for leota (laughs) is not a big fan of hers i mean they love her so much that they view her as like dangerous as luring people to their doom as masters of fate as demonic and it's it's all really negative but it's a negative it's a negativity that's kind of caught up with uh the the hatred that often accompanies in infatuation or a really bad crush i also want to highlight the introduction of william munger here he lurks in the background of this story for an awfully long time though he is an important character so on a cursory read it's really easy to ignore his presence until he becomes unignorable i mean so yes unger is Moore's perceived competition for leota and does kind of spur more on to these bigger and better tasks you know these kind of herculean efforts he he gets into inventing all these patents for water purification and working 80 hours a week and just imagining the reward for all of this labor as leota but primitive more here rears his head again when unger shows up and he thinks about bashing unger with his club and this is caveman type imagery and i think it really clarifies what's going on in moore's mind he's fighting a base nature that he knows won't fly where he wants to go, where he wants to be a member in part of the set. There are two illusions associated with Theoda here, two more illusions, I should say, that I want to point out before we move on. Here she's described as having a mock Camille sort of response or reaction to more. This is a reference to an Alexander Dumas feel uh, story that is very close to the plot of Moulin Rouge, which is a poor man <laughs> falling in love with a dying courtesan. And Camille is the courtesan in that in that story. And I think if you've seen Moulin Rouge, uh, you probably know that kind of conflict of the courtesan's character that Zelazny is referring to here. And then later, Leota is referred to as Brack-like uh, in the way that she takes up space in Moore's notes and sketches and I think that's to indicate also the way she is in his mind Uh, Brock was an early developer of cubism as an art style along with Picasso so I think we're meant to understand by this reference that in Moore's mind Leota is this kind of two-dimensional figure spread across uh, a three-dimensional plane or a three-dimensional figure spread across this two-dimensional frame in any event Moore is trying to capture as much of her as possible as he can with his imagination in two dimensions. And it kind of really distorts the image of her. So we as readers never really get to meet the real Leota. We only know the Leota in Moore's mind. That's this distorted figure spread across uh, a kind of canvas. 
it's important to point out then that it's just this idea of Leota that spurs more on to do what he's doing professionally with an eye to growing his wealth. He's had almost no time with her so far. She's almost like his muse. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Muse is a, a perfect word for this, that he's doing all of this for her, all of this because of her, but she's really kind of just a, a, a figure to him. She's not a real person. It's actually not clear to me that she's ever really a fully fleshed, like real person, though, as you point out, that might really just be a matter of the narrative. We are going to end up having to talk about who's narrated this and why have they narrated it in this fashion. This was a question we had to ask about the Keys to December as well. It might be a question we ask about the the next uh, Zelazny story that we're going to do, which is called For a Breath I Tarry. Uh, we'll see if uh, this is something that Zelazny's doing in sort of our complete sample here of his works. And I'm really excited to talk about all of that, but we should get to this Bastille Day party and, and move on with our narrative a little bit here. So Moore and Leota actually get on quite well at the Bastille Day party. She's impressed by his self-improvement, and uh, this time she actually chooses him over William Unger in a similar situation as happened at the Christmas party. And here now Moore tells her that he intends to join the set, and this lets us, the readers, learn some more about what the set is. It turns out the set is a company of some sort. It is definitely a business. There are directors and shareholders, and the business of the set is throwing parties and also attending parties. The the members of the set are professional partiers, but the attraction to them really is their relationship with time. You were talking about this a little bit already, Brandon, because they are seemingly immortal and, and seemingly really just untethered from time. They, they provide a certain exclusivity. Elon really is actually the word that Leota uses here uh, to people who can afford to hire them. And the basic business model of the set depends on keeping themselves distinct. And that also then in turn depends on an aggressively selective admissions process. And here is how Leota describes this to more. In a world of physical ease, brutal social equality, and reasonable economic equality, exclusiveness and frivolity becomes the most sought after of all distinctions. Uh, I do expect that that is a phrase that we'll be picking apart when we talk about the world building, uh, the, the setting in our discussion episode. But what really matters here is that the real arbiter of admissions is uh, a woman called the Doyen, or known as the Doyen. Uh, her name is Mary Maud Mullen. She was born around 1890, uh, a founding member of the set and the, the personality who's really responsible for maintaining its elan, its exclusivity. Of the thousands who want a spot in the the set, the thousands who apply every year, she will interview about 12 each year and, and maybe select someone and maybe not. She might just pass on everybody. With a member of the set sponsoring him, though, more can be guaranteed to be one of these 12 who's interviewed, but the rest of it is going to be totally up to him. And at the end of their, their date, just their third date here, Leota agrees to sponsor him for membership. And so now it is indeed up to more, and he uses his next year to prepare. He tracks down and shares a martini with a former member of the set, though all he learns in this scene really is that, uh, and, and I'm quoting here, Attitudes are a disease that no one's immune to, and they vary so easily in the same person. In two minutes, she'll have you stripped down to them, and your answers will depend on biochemistry and the weather. So will her decision. There's nothing I can tell you. She's pure caprice. She's life. She's ugly. That's a, another great description. And maybe Zelazny's like whole cosmology, his whole worldview, <laughs> like wrapped yes. up in one paragraph there. And 
So more downs his martini and, and gets on with the business of doing what he thinks he needs to do to prepare. So he makes a fortune. He takes a better title with a new company in Hawaii. He gets married and then gets divorced because he's discovered that the set prefers divorced men to perpetual bachelors. And then he gets tired. He gets weary from all of this work. He actually starts to wonder why he's doing all of this. And he realizes that although his original motivation was to be with Leota, right, to acquire her in some way after having met her only twice, I guess three times now, really. But now at this point, the intermediary goal of joining the set has become his real goal. He's lost sight of the goal behind it, and he's become obsessed with this middle step here, right? This is something that he now wants very badly for itself on its own, right? And and here's what Zelazny writes, and this is a a great passage with a, a little bit of Macbeth in it. He realized then that his goals had shifted. The act had become the actor. What he really wanted, first and foremost, impure and unsimple, was an end to the set. That century-spanning stratocruiser, luxury class, jetting across tomorrow and tomorrow and all the days that followed after. To ride high, like those gods of old who appeared at the rites of the equinoxes, slept between processions, and were manifest with each new season, the bulk of humanity living through all those dreary days that lay between. And I have to say that, well, as I said when we encountered a similar concept in The Keys to December over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, that, well, I would really like to be able to live for a long time like this, to cryogenically freeze myself and pop back in from time to time in order to see how things work out. This perpetual party totally removed from society, uh, this actually just strikes me as grotesque and horrifying, where waking up every few centuries to check on the state of some ecological engineering seemed romantic to me, romantic with a, a capital R. So the same basic concept that Zelazny is working here in both of these stories has a totally different feel to it to me. Yeah, I mean, the sci-fi backdrop of this story does have a lot in common with the keys to December. And I'm, I'm really not sure why Zelazny is thinking so much about the desire to observe changes in the world while being removed from them. But it's clearly something that's on his mind at this point in his life. And it's really about the idea of what it means to transcend the, the limits of humanity But I think Zelazny in both of these stories is looking at the cost that isn't considered by those who initially have the idea to transcend their humanity. It's a great topic, and we'll go more into depth in this in the discussion. I view both avenues that Zelazny is really approaching this topic from to have their own drawbacks in their own ways and So the way he's approaching it in this story is far more grotesque, as you said, and distressing. I mean, these people only wake up to perform at parties and really to perform as the partiers. And we're led to believe that this is something that humanity needs. It's humanity's bread and circus, so to speak. There are all these references to joining the set that are that liken joining the set to becoming a god. Moore realizes that to join the set, he has to have this certain sort of je ne sais quoi that money or success or material commodities can't make up for. He needs to have something else, something that can't be put into words or can't have a material analog in the world. And it's kind of like a a, a type of soul, a, a sense of being. It's a kind of quality of soul that really is referred to earlier in this story as narcissism. Um, And there's a real negativity associated with that by whoever's narrating the story. And I think we're meant to see that Moore's shifting goals are a product of that change in his own spirit. At first, he was motivated by a kind of romantic love, which we all know can be 
catastrophic or tragic, but also lead to uh, deeper companionship, sense of duty and obligation and pleasure in another person. But he's soon realized that this was all a means to an end. And this is going to be explicit in the text in the next section, though it's really implicit here. All of his work is a means to an end, though he hasn't learned to treat anything as an end to itself. It's kind of an, an ethical flaw. He, he hasn't learned to do something because the doing provides him with a sense of contentment or satisfaction. And this is maybe because the world works so well to the benefit of everybody in it that it's hard to be content or satisfied because it's maybe hard to know the meaning or the impact of your contributions to that world. And we see that Moore's contributions in this world are massive. He basically learns how to purify the ocean and pump water around the world, revolutionizes uh, humankind's water supply. But all of this is really hinted at, this this sense that you're not really able to impact the world you live in. This is hinted at in Leota's sense of the world that you mentioned just uh, a few moments ago with that paragraph that we will be talking about in the discussion when we talk about world building. I think we also have to look at the presence of Kabbalah and the references to Armageddon in the discussion as well that are present in this section. We we have references to Eve, Lilith, Adam Kadmon, a, and Malkuth. Um, Adam Kadmon is the primitive man. It is the Kabbalah version of Adam, who is the first man. Eve is the first woman. Lilith is the first kind of botched woman, I suppose. <laughs> um, Malkuth is the emanation or appearance or uh, attribute of the Sephiroth, which is the 10 aspects of God in Kabbalah, who sits at the base of the tree of life. And, you know, this is an image to keep in mind as we look towards the end of the story, though we're far from it at this point. We also have a reference to the promised land, uh, and then Armageddon is the end of the world. I mean, Leota here is called Eve of the Microprospos, and Microprospos could mean a small universe here. So more is thinking Leota as really the first woman or prime woman in the small world of the set, but it's a Kabbalistic reference, as I said. You know, and Eve here is contrasted to Lilith, who more refers to if it was him making these references or edi- editorializing just who Leota is the child of in terms of archetypes. Earlier, he thinks of her as Lilith, but now he calls her Eve at the Bastille Day party. So there's a lot going on here. We're only like, you know, less than 10 pages into this story, maybe. <laughs> and this is just packed with these references, though some of them are here, I think, just for the the pleasure of making allusions. But we'll we'll dig into all of that. Again, we have to address Unger's presence at the party, at the Bastille Day party as well. I think we're meant to understand that everybody is naked at this party, that it's a fete nu uh, for Bastille Day. We see in the text that the only thing Leota is wearing is an orchid corsage. And so Unger is sort of stranded grotesquely in this sea of bodies as Leota and Moore go off to talk about Moore's entries requirements to the set. And, of course, this means that Leota might like more than she's letting on in because she's willing to sponsor him. 
And she's also the one who gave him this invitation to the Bastille party as well. But we can just sense Unger's disappointment or a sense of abandonment as he's stuck in this on the edges and trying to fight his way through this mass of naked partiers. It's 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 a dark image. It's not an image I really particularly like in the story, though. It's put to great use. Um I also don't have too much to say about the meeting with Daryl Wilson, other than if this guy was a member of the set before, he is extraordinarily bitter now. And and maybe that's an indicator of what it means to be a part of the set or to have to leave it. Yeah, one thing we should say is that that, that by now it is clear that, that if you join the set, you become a, a shareholder in the set, which is a quite profitable business. But the thing that really matters about that is that uh, your money is invested for you in the, you know, the stock market or the bond market or, you know, some combination of those things, I guess. And it grows over time. And time is happening objectively much faster than it is for you subjectively. So uh, even just a month of your subjective time might be several years of objective time. And so your investments will have grown uh, more than your own experiences will. And so you can be in the set for a year and retire from it an extremely wealthy man. And that is what we see this guy doing, just sitting at a bar, drinking martinis. I'd actually like to read a whole series of stories about him. I, I just have it in my like my head canon that he's actually an occult detective for fun now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's just an alcoholic, though, I think, in this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a cult detective and alcoholic might kind of mean the same thing, I suppose. Yeah, one, one yeah. is doing a little bit more with their life, though maybe not not too much more. <laughs> All right, well, we get some short cutscenes here, and, and, and one of them shows us Mary Maud Mullen waking up from her cryogenic sleep. So this is a, a scene not narrated from the point of view of more that will be important when we're talking about who wrote this text uh, when we get to the discussion. Discussion. Well, now that it is 2002, this is the third century that Mary Maud Mullen has seen, and she intends to see many more centuries in the future. But we learn that she has MS, and she's been using the cryogenic sleep to outrun the disease. She's trying to wait for a cure, though no such cure has yet been achieved in 2002. On interview day, Moore finds himself in a room full of uh, little dogs made of china. This is Mullen's collection. This sounds nightmarish to me. And Mullen is a tough interviewer. All of Moore's answers are wrong. And of course, that was predetermined. And if you've taken PhD comps, for example, then you have been through exactly this kind of hazing ritual, basically. And perhaps the biggest question that she has for him here is whether or not he is in love with Leota. And Moore says that he's no longer sure, which for Mullen is a good thing. She says, infatuation is fine. It makes for good gossip. Love, on the other hand, I will not tolerate. Purge yourself of such notions. Nothing is so boring and ungay at a set affair. It does not make for gossip. It makes snickers. Uh, but she also tells him that he will have to, and I'm, I'm quoting again here, that he will have to develop a Buddhist's attitude toward the world around you. Uh, that world will change from day to day. And that whenever Moore looks at it, it will be a, a different world. It will be unreal is the, the word that she uses here. And there is a lot of this in this scene, a lot of this in this interview, a, a sense that it is futile to try to actually exist in the, the future. That If he joins the set, all he's going to have is these parties and that sort of even just looking outside the window is going to be a bad idea. Yeah, it really comes down to the inability to make an impact on the world or to change the world anymore. You're going to be an observer. And Mullen tells more here that he has to develop this Zen or you know Buddhist attitude towards one's inability to change the world. 
This is a pretty big trade-off as far as I'm concerned. She's also asking him not to love anybody or love anything. Uh, this is kind of a an attitude or a posture that she's asking him to take that is totally disconnected from anything apart from set business. And it's rough. I mean, the narrator of the story gives us the sense that Moore's interview is taking place in hell, basically. There's lots of hell imagery connected to the wood fire that is burning in, quote, the hell place instead of the fireplace. <laughs> and and we have to, I think, take that seriously. This is not the last time we'll see hell imagery in this story. You know, Mary Maud Mullen also talks about how the dogs are viewed by her as symbols. And we see in the section that they're likely a tradition of gift giving to her that's gone too far. I mean, she receives them as gifts by those she lets into the set and they each have a little place in her collection. And this is, I think, symbolic of the way she views the set and her role over it. They're just China dogs, these unchanging, lifeless things that she controls and can do what she wants with. And we see that by the way she treats the China dog that Moore gives her. Moore gives Mary Mon Mullen this dog and Mullen treats it with derision and then she puts it in a place in the collection that's right next to the fireplace and the fire destroys it over time. We see that the narrator of the story, who has maybe seen this collection later on, tells us that the fire has cracked this dog. And maybe that's a symbol here of what it is for Moore to be in the set or what Moore's time in the set will be like, but regardless of what it means, we're meant to make something of this symbol and and we will have to make sense of it by the end of the story. I think we also see in this interview the reason why the set wants divorced men. I think, you know, in the logic of the story, divorce is a cure for romantic love. <laughs> but because Moore has only married in order to get divorced, he hasn't been fully inoculated from the issue that they don't want in the set. I think we're also led to believe that Moore's mail-order bride, basically, whose name is Diane Demetrios, which is a combination of Diana and Demeter, the goddess of the hunt and goddess of harvest and fertility, and fertility, was at some point surgically altered to look like Leota. And maybe that's why Moore married her. He's kind of a rough customer. He He doesn't want the thing he wants, and he doesn't know what he wants. And he's kind of oriented his life towards becoming a member of this community on really shaky pretenses. I mean, even the answers he gives Mary Mon Mullen here that he wants to see the world change. He wants to see progress. He wants to see how engineering will improve. Uh, Mary Mon Mullen tells him, basically, you know, we're not running a, a college seminar here. You need to get your act <laughs> together. Things are going to be much worse than you think they are. Um, and he's okay with it. And it's uh, it's it's not great. This whole idea of the set is really bizarre. This is it's not a job I would want. I, I might like to see the future. I mean, I am a historian. I'm interested in how things are going to, to, to work out or, you know, whether they're actually going to work out or not. But this job itself, Sounds absolutely terrible. I, I enjoy going to a party from time to time, even a, a fancy party where you have to dance and speak French and or be naked, I guess. I've never done that. But yeah, sure, I could be into that from time to time. But this is every day. This is what all their days are. So 
Moore is uh, clearly an intelligent person. He's able to give himself all of this training. He's already working as an electrical engineer and is clearly quite talented at that. So he's someone who is curious about the world, about how things work. He likes to figure out how to make new things happen and new things exist in the world. But he's applying for this job where he's going to have to shut all of that off, this really important part of who he is. And, and there's no way that that can work out well for anybody. At least I, I don't think so. I certainly couldn't envision this working out well for me. I wouldn't want to give up our creative projects like the podcasting, the writing. I wouldn't want to give up my teaching in order to do this. I might add this to my life. I might give up one of those things to replace it with this, but I couldn't give up that whole you know intellectual, emotional, sort of passionate side of my life in order to just go to parties and dance with people all the time. It's a very strange idea. Yeah, and I think we'll see that they are allowed to kind of wake maybe when they want once in a while or wake early for a party and have a few days on either side of it or something like that. But Leota, at least, is very hesitant to do that uh, because she doesn't want to lose any more time. She's obsessed with living forever, not just living. It's all this sort of means to an end. It's all adventures and missing the point, I think, that the set is is dealing with. Yeah, that's fair. It is really Leota who is who is living that way even more so than than everybody else. And then because Moore is trying to be with Leota, we really see him following suit that we're going to get a, a side adventure coming up in not too much longer. Let's even just go ahead and, and get back to the, the narrative now. So Moore is in. He's a, a member of the set now. I mean, I think we saw that coming. And what he does is go to fancy parties and then cryogenically sleep such that what is a night's sleep for him is weeks or months or years for people outside the set. And Zelazny shows us Moore's very first set party, or at least one of his first anyway, we should say. And it's it's in a kind of sea dome somewhere on Earth. Uh, this is 2002. There's some fun history of the future stuff here. I mean, for, for one, the, the sea dome itself, right? That's a crazy thing we don't actually have. But also there are zeppelins, and we learned that there's a habitable dome on the moon as well. And in fact, Moore wants Leota to take a vacation with him. That's the conversation that is going on at this party. And here, as you said, Brandon, this is where she says she's not into that idea all that much, but especially she's not really into any of his suggested locations, including the moon. And in general, they don't seem to want the same things here, though there is some great banter in this scene. Zelazny does this kind of a hard-boiled cocktail party banter extraordinarily well, this, uh, this whole story. So a month later for them, 12 years for the rest of us, Moore and Leota take a stroll around the set grounds, which we learned are in Bermuda, and their cryogenically facility here is called the Hall of Sleep. And you pointed out already, Brandon, how they are sometimes also called the sleepers in addition to the set. And again, in this conversation, they just don't seem to want the same thing. Moore says that he loves her and he wants her to leave the set and then return to the real world, return to the real flow of time with him and just have a life together to be married and, and maybe start a family or something. It turns out that at a previous party, he's had a strange encounter with someone he used to know, someone who is his same age, objectively anyway, but is now 20 years older than him. And, and he seems really bothered by this. And Moore even wonders if any of this is real, and he suggests that maybe they are living in the exact plot of The Matrix, basically, where some aliens who've conquered the planet have kept the set people alive in a simulation for their own amusement. But Leota is not concerned about any of this. She doesn't care if actually they're living in The Matrix or not. She likes living in The Matrix, and so that's fine by her. And for her, being unbound by time is 
refreshing. It's, it's stimulating. It's awe-inspiring to her. Here, here's what she says about this. Everything burning, us remaining. Neither time nor space can hold us unless we consent. And it strikes me that although our sample size is very small, right? 100% of the Zelazny stories that we have read together have involved a romantic couple using cryogenic freezing to live far into the future, but who also maybe have some fundamentally different worldviews, right? This is, as we've said, this is a setup that Zelazny uses in the Keys to December as well. I mean, it is really fascinating that Zelazny is telling two very different stories with this same premise, with this same basic uh, uh, speculative premise, but also the same basic character conflict at the the heart of it. Yeah, I know. I, it's it's really funny. I mean, every short story he's written can't actually be about this. <laughs> and, and I doubt that they are. But he, he's coming at these ideas from some fresh angles, as we kind of talked about before. I think this story has quite a bit more nihilism in it, at least from Leota's perspective and maybe some other characters as well. You know, Moore is in real trouble here because he's come back to being in love with Leota, who's only known him for five weeks, I guess we're looking at here. But Moore has built Leota up in his mind for years, and she exists as like a person that's so different from what he thinks she is in his mind. And it's a kind of an asymmetrical love affair, if, if you can even call it that. I mean... Leota calls the moon the, like the cemetery at the end of time. And, and and then that's what she's trying to avoid. She doesn't want to be reminded that if she lives forever, she may seem time ending. And she doesn't really care necessarily if that's the case, though she doesn't want to be reminded of it because she likes performing as part of the set. It's what she likes to do. And it's just a, it's just a little hard on more at this point in the story, but he's going to find his own way out of it. I do think Leota does have some feelings for more. She's developing maybe romantic feelings for him, though it's clear that she's actually not happy about that. And I think we can see at this under the sea party, the whole glamorous facade of the set cracking. I mean, Leota is a little uh, unenamored by the, the set, though she can't leave it, nor does she want to. At this party, we see people screaming and being slapped, kind of told to shut up. Anger is so, so drunk. I mean, he can't even stand up. He's like under a table. A woman breaks down crying as soon as the cameras that are filming the party are turned off. And I think the main thing that this section is demonstrating is that the set really does exist to provide the world with a sense of vicarious entertainment and glamour and intrigue and escapist fantasies. The set are performers for the rest of the world. And this is why Leota isn't actually concerned about Moore's proposition about reality. Who cares whether the set is performing for humans or whether they're performing for aliens? That's what they're there for, and that's what they'll do. This just all hasn't sunken in for Moore yet. And Moore may have to learn some lessons about this by the by the end of the story. Yeah, and if we're thinking about Zelazny using symbols here, embedding symbols into the narrative to to help us be clued into what's going on with the characters, of course, this this party under this sea, the, I don't know, enchantment under the sea dance. <laughs> this is where, I think they call back, it the Davy Jones dance here, but yeah, they did. Zelazny's <laughs> predicting the uh, enchantment under the sea dance yeah, from Back to the Future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't get anything narrated about Moore's hand kind of starting to vanish, but I'm sure that that's happened. But this uh, the sea dome that they are in here actually literally cracks, and they 
have to get rescued from a tidal wave coming in. It's not quite a tidal wave, but, you know, they're all going to drown if they don't get rescued. This is where we get the Zeppelins. And so, you know, I think you're right to point to the the image of the set, the idea of this life cracking for Leota. You know, it's being literally manifest here in the, the environment around her as well. Right. They make these jokes about, do you think it's going to rain? Uh, and that's because there's a crack in the dome as a result of some earthquake, I guess, uh, that has that taken place not near enough to do damage. But people are really freaking out. I mean, people who are invited to this party are so thankful they're just getting saved by these Zeppelins, though the people in the set know that if the set weren't there they might just let these other people die. It's This scene is a really dark scene in the story, but it's narrated beautifully, and the dialogue is so cavalier and casual that you almost don't get the sense that everybody's about to die if they're not going to be rescued. Right. It's really kind of a metaphor for what the set is at all. It's all glamour and and glitz and, and banter. It's distracting you from what is uh, really going on around you, I suppose. It's kind of a, uh, you know, bread and circuses going on here with that, as you, you mentioned already. Well, at this point, we have now only seen the first five weeks of Moore's life here in the set. But now we are going to catapult forward to the 13th week, which in objective time is now 2078, more than a century after his birth. Moore is alone here at this point, but we are told that Leota has been vacationing with him when they didn't have set functions, but that she's begun to resent using up these weeks of biological life over such a short period of objective time. And so now she's frozen again, uh, leaving Moore to his own devices. And so Moore is using his free time here to take a vacation by himself. And he decides at the last minute that he wants to go to Hawaii to see a water treatment facility where he used to work uh, really only a few months ago in his subjective experience, but decades ago in reality, decades ago in the uh, measurement of objective time. And this, by the way, is another place where we get some fun history of the future stuff about air travel, all of which just seems so bright and shiny and just absurdly optimistic to us right now. Uh, on the plane, the computer makes him a martini and then offers some in-flight entertainment, including a poetry reading. I wish we did actually have this on our in-flight <laughs> entertainment. And impulsively, more asks the computer if it has anything by William Unger. Uh, this is, you know, the other man, the other member of the set with whom he has had to compete for Leota's uh, attention and maybe Leota's uh, affection as well. Unger is a poet, it turns out. He has several books of poetry. They've been published over a long period of time because of this whole cryogenic freezing business. And this is the point in the story where we realize that Unger is going to matter to it. You, know, you mentioned this earlier, Brandon, that he matters to the story, but we really don't get that sense at the start. It's not until this scene that we come to understand that. Uh, and so we may end up talking about his poetry in the discussion. And since Selesny has really written several poems here in this story, we may end up reading them aloud there. But I'm not going to do it here, uh, at least not all of them for sure. The first poem, though, that Moore listens to is Unger's most recent, though it's from 2016. So really quite a while ago. It's called Our Wintered Way Through Evening and Burning Bushes Along It. And the imagery is all ice and cold and snow and sleep. Uh, Burning bushes, you know, have to call up Moses. That's also something we talked about in the Keys to December. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about all of that. But Moore is not actually interested in this poem. So it's just kind of there in the, the story, at least from a narrative standpoint. And he asked the computer read him a poem written before Unger joined the set. This was back in 1979. 
There isn't one, technically, but there is one that was mostly written before that point, and it was published then in 1981, uh, and I feel like this detail is going to be important later. This poem is called In the Dogged House, and this one we will go ahead and read, or at least the first stanza, since it also has something of the title of the story that we are reading here, The Graveyard Heart. Uh, Here's the, the first stanza of this poem. The heart is a graveyard of Kriegus, hid far from the hunter's eye, where love wears death like enamel, and dogs crawl in to die. And all of this, all of this, the, the poems, this poem in particular, get more thinking about Unger. And we get now a, a weird flashback scene to the centennial of the free workers' liberation in the Soviet Union in 2017. Uh, another bit of the history of the future that did not quite work out the way Zelazny thought it might. And here at this party, Unger and Moore ran into each other at the bar. And quite a bit of their conversation is about the fact that there are no real bars anymore in the real world now that uh, everyone just uses replicators, I guess, to to make (laughs) drinks. Uh, But this is just one of Unger's complaints about the world. He's clearly a grumpy dude with a, a sense that things were better before now, whenever now actually is. And I think we should go through his complaints. I think they're very interesting here. For one, he says that the reason people join the set is exhibitionism, simply because it has gotten harder and harder to attract attention to oneself. Even in the sciences, great individuals are no longer how it's done. It's it's great research teams, not great individuals. And even the arts have become democratized out of existence, really. And anyway, he says, where have all the audiences gone? And he doesn't mean spectators. He means audiences, genuine audiences. They actually end up leaving the party while they're having this conversation, and they they go for a walk together, and all continues. And when they see that famous statue of Lenin, Unger compares him to Macbeth and then complains that no one knows Shakespeare anymore. So some real pessimism here uh, about the future of Zelazny's own profession, and maybe some real pessimism about the present of his own profession as well. But all of this, of course, embedded in this bright, shiny, optimistic, technologically anyway, optimistic uh, vision of the the future. But the the last of Unger's complaints here is about peace. And, and this one I, I just want to read because this really fascinated me. Here's what he says. Yes, nations went to war. Artilleries thundered. Blood was spilled. People died. But we lived through it, crossing a shaky shinvat word by word. Then one day, there it was. Peace. It had been that way a long time before anyone noticed. We still don't know how we did it. Perpetual postponement and a short memory, I guess, as man's attention became occupied 24 hours a day with other things. Now there is nothing left to fight over, and everyone is showing off the fruits of peace, because everyone has some, by the roomful. All they want. More. These things that fill the rooms, though, and the mind. How they have proliferated. Each month's version is better than the last, in some hyper-sophisticated manner. They seem to have absorbed the minds that are absorbed within them. And in the end here, Moore even asks Unger why he bothered to be in the set if he just hates everything so much. And Unger's answer is that he's an audience in search of an entertainment. And this is an argument that I've heard before, right? That peace and tranquility aren't really that good for us because most of the awesome things that humans are capable of grow out of struggle and conflict and constraints and strife. But this does also seem like the kind of argument that you make when you have a robot making your martinis and maybe not so much when you are in a trench and being bombarded by artillery. So I'm looking forward to talking about this in the discussion as well. I have to point out here that the robot makes the drinks, but even on this liberated workers' holiday, uh, they still order drinks through a real person who presses the buttons on the robot. And this is a bit of irony that I think Zelazny is throwing in here, again, to show us that there's just some disconnect between what all these symbolic parties are and what they are meant to represent and what they actually meant historically. And 
this comes up in Unger's speech here. The speech is really reminiscent of the one that Orson Welles wrote for The Third Man, a film that was otherwise written by Graham Greene. Welles wrote his own speech here. And Orson Welles' character's argument is based on faulty premises, but it's basically that while the rest of the world was in chaos and going through changes and strife and conflict, the Swiss didn't really do that much, and all they got out of the whole bargain was a cuckoo clock, while other countries produced geniuses like da Vinci and stuff and uh, great art and great inventions. But, you know, you get the picture. It's that strife and war and difficulty produce great art and inventions that move humanity forward, so to speak. And this is the Hegelian dialectic in a very simplistic sort of way that through conflict comes this third uh you know thing that is better than the other two ideas that came before it and while these inventions that move humanity forward while this art that speaks to the human soul in an evergreen sort of way while those things may not speak to the age they're produced Uh, Unger's complaint here is that now nothing is produced at all for people to like reflect back on or people are ignoring the things that got humanity to this point. All of these great pieces of art and inventions and forms of genius have finally created the peaceful world that they were all sort of in search of. And it's boring. But I have to wonder if Unger's boredom here isn't just that he's not living life at all. He's stopped believing in life and he won't leave the set and the party lifestyle to maybe take a new risk by opening his own bar and Unger's really bitter here I mean he says that in this kind of exhibitionist mode about the people in the set that if not for the set Leota wouldn't even be able to get work as a stripper in the real world he's just in a vile mood yeah, right, because the profession of stripper doesn't even exist anymore. This is one of the complaints that Unger has about the world, and that, that, that all of all the art forms, including stripping, have, have really disappeared. I, I suspect that's not really true, though, right? I suspect very much that this is just Unger's grumpiness, and maybe is also just the result of the fact that he's out of time here that what does he even know about the world and the people in it and what they're up to and uh, what types of stories they tell to each other and how they tell those stories where they're where they're doing that he is really not the type of person that I would want to spend any time with yeah and I and I wonder if this is also what it means to be in the set is to recognize that like the ancient Greek and Roman gods that you're the source of cultural storytelling and and what is going on is important culturally because you're transcending time and uh, I don't know what you've done before you got in there is supposed to have some long-lasting cultural or uh, historical impact and I want to take a look now Unger's poetry a little bit the first poem is definitely living about life in cryostasis and in a state of perpetual winter, you know, quote, where only evergreens whiten and we have this fire imagery and this cold imagery. Uh, to me, this like kind of Christmassy evergreen imagery could be connected to the New Year's party at the beginning of the story where Unger's romantic rival Moore first came on the scene. We also get a reference to a gargoyle in this poem, and that is a word used only once before in the story to describe Mary Maud Mullen. And we get imagery of everything burning, including the gods of the set. And these are words that we can connect to Leota. So we can understand more sort of bafflement and desire to know more about this poem that he's just encountered, because it seems to be a lot about the world that he knows and the, the language that maybe he's even used or encountered. 
I also want to talk about the collection that the poem in the Dogged House is in. Uh, this poetry collection is called Paradise Unwanted, which just as a phrase itself explains Unger's view of the <laughs> technologically advanced world or his hope in technological progress. Uh, Crickus here is a word meaning, you know, fights or war or strife. And I just want to say at this point that the book that we're reading this story in is chock full of helpful explanations, definitions, and they've really cut some research time for me way down. So thanks to the editors of this volume. Um, but, but this imagery here of the heart being a graveyard of Kriegis is really a graveyard of strife or war. And I think Unger is really describing a, a kind of listlessness that comes with being unable to impact the world any further and just watch it as an observer, even if you watch it at all, but really just to be watched, to live in the world, to be witnessed uh, is too much. His strife is really internal, but it has no outlet. And his struggle is between being an observer and being observed because he can no longer participate in the world. In any event, we'll have more to talk about in the discussion regarding this poetry, uh, especially as this one in the Dogged House contains the title of the story, or at least the idea of the title of the story within it. Yeah, I'll just say one more thing about this scene before we leave it and, and continue on, is that we've even really just seen demonstration that Unger's understanding of people's appreciation of the arts in the world is is flawed. Just by the very fact that, that offered as in-flight entertainment is a poetry reading, right? That this is something that is in demand, right? A poetry reading. This is what people want to do while they're sitting on a flight and also drinking a martini, of course. And that actually sounds like a very nice airplane flight. So it does really not seem that Unger has any real understanding of the, the the world that they are in at all. But we should also we should also keep in mind, of course, too, that although Zelazny is not calling a lot of attention to it, Unger and Moore are both Leota's love interest. She does at this point seem to be romantically involved with both of them, though we're only really seeing her spend any time with Moore. And so even just this conversation between the two of them, a little bit drunk at this uh, this uh, centennial celebration of the uh, October Revolution in 1917, is two people who are competing for the love of the same person uh, talking to each other about their worldviews. So there's already going to be some strife there in in some way right i mean unger's speech is is built entirely on the same sort of uh, hubris and false premises that orson welles speech are and i think zelazny kind of modeled this speech off of wells in some way yeah that wouldn't surprise me at all i mean even a lot of the party dialogue feels very much like it's it's from the third man or any other kind of hard-boiled or, or film noir story as well. I, I don't know, it was probably what he was watching a lot uh, while he was writing this <laughs> this story. Well, all right. So this flashback scene is over and we, we can move on from it now. So Moore's plane lands at the private landing strip of his former company, a company he actually helped build. And of course, it's totally different. He feels out of place. And in the end, he doesn't even stick around for, for very long, though the, the current head of the company actually wants to have dinner with him so he can talk talk about how to get into the set himself. So we get a sense that this is something that lots of people are interested in in doing. But now we are in store for a scene that is totally going to change the direction of the story and, and also raise the stakes as well. This is a private meeting between Leota and the doyen of the set, Mary Maud Mullen. So again, this is another scene where Moore is not present, but one of only a very few such scenes. And the the deal is this. 
Leota is pregnant, and she intends to have the child. Uh, she wants to give birth to the child, a daughter, and then give her up to the real world to be raised by someone else, but raised with the wealth that Leota has accrued as a member of the set. And then Leota will continue on as if nothing has really happened. But... Mary Maud Mullen is not into this idea. She is firm that if Leota has the baby, she will have to leave the set. At the at the same time, though, she does not want to kick her out right away, and she even wants her to use the cryogenic chamber to delay giving birth, uh, at least in, in you know delay in terms of absolute time, objective time. And this won't affect the the baby in any way. We are told, and Mullen's agenda here is totally about PR. Right, the media is obsessed with the set. It's really what the set is for. It's how the set makes money, and so she wants to make a big news story out of this. And that also means that Leota is going to have to marry the father uh, so that there can be a big romantic storyline for the media here. But of course, the identity of the father is a question, at least for us, the readers, because Leota is sexually active with both Moore and William Unger. The next scene, though, has Leota and Moore swimming in the Atlantic on a very nice sunny afternoon with Leota now attempting to get Moore to give up the set and return to the normal world with her, right? So the tables have turned and now it is Moore, actually, who doesn't want to give up the set. He actually tells her about going back to his old job and how the changes that had happened in the intervening decades have really filled him with an intense desire to actually see more of the future. Uh, Here's what he says about this. This is another really great passage. I was just staring at all those tandem tanks and tiers of machinery that had grown up inside the shell of that first old building, sort of like inside a womb. And I suddenly felt that someday something was going to be born, born out of steel and plastic and dancing electrons in such a stainless, sunless place. And that something would be so fine that I would want to be there to see it. I couldn't dignify it by calling it a mystical experience or anything like that. It was just a sort of feeling I had. But if that moment could stay forever... Anyhow, the set is my ticket to a performance I'd like to see. Yeah, this small monologue of Moore's, I think, really captures one of the core tensions the or themes of the story or tensions within a theme of the story. So last thing he's asking the question of whether we should rely on science and ingenuity to overcome our human flaws. He's asking if, you know, what humans will make will eventually be better than humans themselves. We'll, we'll just overcome problems of humanity which in you know christianity is thought of as original sin but you know people are flawed and if we augment ourselves with technology or are able to create technology that's better than us then we won't be flawed anymore and more is really looking to affirm his faith in progress that's why he visits his old work he's looking he's really on a kind of religious pilgrimage here though he wants to reject that there's any mystical or Uh, religious feelings associated with this visit. He wants to convince himself that keeping up the way he's going with the set is going to allow him to witness the conclusion, perhaps, of the glorious march of progress. I mean, Mary Maud Mullen has already been cured of MS. The Sahara has been turned into an oasis, thanks in part to Moore's patents and inventions. And Moore hopes that people will continue to make the world better by replacing themselves with robots or something along those lines or having robots make something better than people and this is of course one of the reasons that mullen gave earlier on in joining the set and he's returning to that reason now this witness of progress of technological advancement of taking this kind of seminar of future history if you will he's returning to this reasoning now 
just when he's on the cusp of getting what he wanted from trying to join the set of the first place, which is the requited love of Leota, or at least being chosen by Leota over Unger. And so this guy's just kind of flip-flopping. He really doesn't know what he wants. He wants it all, and he can justify any action he takes by his kind of prior reasoning uh, to getting here. And he's, he's, again, a really complicated character. I do want to say that I, I love the way Zelazny cues the reader into the fact that Leota has been sleeping with both Unger and Moore at this point in the story, if it hasn't been clear before to the reader. And Zelazny does this by having uh, Mary Mon Mullen ask Leota whether the child's father will be writing the child a sonnet or making it a mechanical toy. <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of demeaning and uh, condescending, but it's also really witty and funny and a great way to kind of reveal information to the reader. I don't think either men really know just how much in, involved Leota is with the other one. And, and that's another thing that I think comes through in this scene. Again, I have to point out this uh, kind of hell imagery or devil imagery that takes place in uh, or around the interaction with uh, Maud Mullen in her office. And this at this point, we get a reference to Faust, um, which is, you know, about the man making a deal with the devil to get his love or find beauty or attain power or status. Uh, we'll talk about whether or not this story is a Faust story in the discussion, but I want to point that out here. All of the Shakespeare plays we've mentioned so far and this Faust piece, Goethe's Faust, were all translated by Boris Pasternak, who is referenced in this uh, story as well. And I get the sense that Unger's reading a lot of uh, Pasternak, either in, <laughs> in the original Russian, either in the translated Russian or in uh, another or Pasternak translated into uh, the English language. These people, uh, I get the sense, can speak multiple languages. I think that the presence of Pasternak here and what he's translated is kind of a, a cue into, perhaps, in, in one reading of the story, who just who the narrator of the story is. Yeah, that is going to be a really fun conversation to have. I, I want to go back, before we go on, I want to go back to something that you just said about the way that Zelazny clues us into the fact that Leota and Unger have also been having a romantic and, and sexual relationship uh, sort of between the scenes here that we're getting about Moore's story. Uh, I was really interested in, in the fact that he does that, that it's not so obvious and explicit really up until this point. And I have to imagine that some of that is uh, a storytelling choice, but that also some of that is really just about the the rules of what's okay to to say explicitly in in this magazine that he was publishing in, or maybe just timidity on his part, wanting to make sure that he, he can make the sale. But I also think it's worth envisioning what this life then must have been like from Leota's perspective rather than from Moore's, because clearly what's going on is that Leota is making dates. She's setting, you know, making she's setting dates. She's making arrangements with Moore to wake up on X day and go to a party together and maybe spend 48 hours together. They'll go to the party one day and then they'll go visit the moon or Switzerland or New Hampshire or whatever on another of those days. And then they, before they go to sleep, they arrange to do it again at whatever the next party is, you know, Thanksgiving or, yeah, I don't know, another Bastille Day party or whatever. But she's also doing that with Unger. And that it's not really clear that the two men really know that either. Uh, and so there is an interesting setup here. And this is going to become the crux of the climax of where this story is going. 
Well, next scene, it's Christmas Day, and Moore and Leota have just gotten married, and they're getting ready to retire from the set. So uh, this was not really quite what I expected after the monologue that we got in the previous scene, but here it is. They're at a party in London, but it's going to be their last party before they cryogenically sleep out the remainder of their contract time with the set. They leave the party early to head back to the Hall of Sleep in Bermuda, uh, only to discover that Unger is actually on the airplane with them. He's composing some poetry and obtusely uh, and maybe maybe gregariously not taking the repeated hints that they would like to be alone. And it's clear that Unger is grumpier than usual and almost certainly feeling jealous and possessive. They land in Bermuda and Moore wants to take the long walk back to the Hall of Sleep. But Leota wants to go straight there right away, so she's going to take some kind of transportation from the runway. But Unger decides that he also wants a walk, and so he'll go with more, at least part of the way. And indeed, after a little while, Unger decides that he wants to go into town, and he he tries to get more to go with him. But more continues the long walk home. So they split up, and alone now, in the dark, in the woods, on Christmas Eve, a little bit lost actually on the grounds, more smokes, and he thinks about time and change, about his own changing attitudes, and also about Unger's dourness here. But then he's home. And he needs to get his dose of drugs before entering the cryogenic sleep. It turns out that's how this works, or at least is part of the mechanism for how cryogenic sleep works here. He heads to his room and then stops, deciding that since he's got a little while before the drugs kick in, and he'd like one more smoke on his pipe anyway, that he should go to Leota's room, even though she's probably already in her cryogenic sleep. When he gets to her door, he sees that the placard still has her last name on it, so he crosses that out with a pen and puts his last name there, now that they are married. And as he's doing this, he realizes that there's a a rhythmic pounding noise coming from the room. And obviously, because this is a story, we know that he is not going to open the door to anything good. And, And certainly at this point, before he opens the door, my expectation is that these are the sounds of Leota and Unger having sex. But... It's not. And in fact, if only that were what's actually going on, because when Moore opens the door, he finds Unger with a mallet in his hand, pounding a stake into the heart of Leota, who is frozen in her cryogenic bunker. And because she's already frozen, there there is no blood, but her chest and her heart are, are fractured, and she looks like a damaged statue. And all the while Unger is doing this, he's, he's quoting literature as something he's been doing throughout the story. And in, in this case, it's the poem Requiescat by Matthew Arnold, the, the great Victorian poet. And he's reciting the opening two lines, which go, strew on her roses, roses, and never a spray of you. And then filling it in with other lines from elsewhere in the poem. And when Moore stops him, Unger just mutters the word vampire, and he says, flying Dutchman, and he accuses Leota of being a goddess on the outside, but a thirsty vacuum on the inside, luring him into her strange world and then not giving him what he wanted, meaning not marrying him. And some of this is confused and broken, but then he says very plainly that he thought she would tire of Moore and come back to him, but she never did. And now no one else will lose as he has lost because she's dead, uh, because he's he's murdered her, right? And Moore kills Unger here. He, he takes the mallet from him and he beats him to death with it. And then he runs and then he walks all the way into town. And the town is decorated for Christmas, but no one is up and about. And Moore goes into an empty church. And, and this is where Zelazny reminds us of the baby, the, the baby whom Unger has also just killed. And I, I think I think let's just read this part of the story here. The interior of the church was dim, and he was attracted to an array of lights about the display at the foot of a statue. It was a manger scene. 
He leaned back against a pew and stared at the mother and the child, at the angels and the inquisitive cattle, at the father. Then he made a sound he had no words for and threw the mallet into the little stable and turned away. Clawing at the wall, he staggered off a dozen steps and collapsed, cursing and weeping, until he slept. They found him at the foot of the cross. And that's how this section ends, and and we still have seven pages to go at this point, though. On my first read, I had no idea where this could possibly be heading now, and and what a tough sequence this was to to read. This really was disturbing to me. It was really profoundly jarring to me. I had to stop reading at this point. I had to take a break. Yeah, it, it really is a tough scene. I mean, there's kind of a, a beauty to it as well, or or a, uh, a strange yearning that I think Zelazny captures really well in this section. You know, we never really see more have any sort of spiritual attitude in this story. Just before, we saw him reject a mystical or metaphysical uh, attitude as he has this encounter with, with progress, having faith in progress earlier. But in this moment of agony and murder, he seeks out the Christian church and he collapses as his drug fully kicks in, the sleeping drug, outside of the manger at the foot of a cross. And it's a powerful symbol and a powerful scene. This whole scene is just really frightening, though. I mean, I found it more frightening than anything else. Unger's mad recitation of the Requiescat is really just terrifying. Everything Unger does here is maybe in an attempt to restore some kind of symbolic meaning to the world that he's left behind. There's a great passage here. Well, more is strolling around reminiscing that I'd like to read that ties into the themes of, you know, the false promise of technological progress that more attributes to Unger's own point of view and perspective of the world that, that kind of builds this sense of tension in the section or, or gives uh, more a sense of peace before he discovers this great conflict that he's that he's thrown into. Um, some of this is going to be quoted. Some I had to change a little bit just, just for the flow of reading. But this is what Zelazny basically writes. Moore had believed, still believed, in the inevitable fusion of machines with the spirit of his kind into greater and finer vessels for life. Now he feared, like Unger, that by the time this occurred, something else might have been lost, and that the fine new vessels would only be partly filled, lacking some essential ingredient. And it's almost as if now that Moore knows he's going to be a father, he's concerned or maybe has developed some conflicts with his past supposition that the merging of machines and humans would correct the errors of humanity. You know, that it's the idea that the imperfection of the soul is something essential to human life and and that there's something more to man than just being a kind of organism among organisms among objects and more is ready now he's he's fully committed to returning to a normal life though he's afraid of what that might mean in a world that he has let pass by again we see his passivity and passion really being the thing that rules him uh that is what he thinks is an end to itself rather than uh, a means to an end. And of course, by the, by the end of the scene with the murders and more collapsing, we see the two male rivals of this story succumb to their own fears and rages, even though they were living, you know, in their perspective, perhaps under the best possible circumstances. It's just a very tragic scene. And this murder with the mallet here calls back primitive Moore's, 
Moore's instincts to kill Unger with a club at the very beginning of the story around Christmas. Uh, and so Zelazny is also doing a great job with foreshadowing and bringing these images back to us as uh, as the story reaches the denouement. And all of this has a real gothic feel to it as well. I mean, we have Unger here playing out the role of being a vampire slayer while uh, quoting Victorian poetry and uh, romantic opera as well, and and clearly going mad because of, of, of something. We'll talk more about that as we get into the next scene, and maybe we should just get into that next scene. Uh, this is really going to be the last section. We're very close to the end here, so we'll be able to, to wrap this up today and then, then get into the discussion episode where we can really try to pick all of this apart and talk about what the heck is going on in this story? Uh, well, in the next scene, Zelazny very quickly narrates Moore's trial. The lawyer for the set had said something about symbolic punishments and advised Moore simply to plead guilty to the charge of murdering Unger. But when Moore does this, he's not given some small symbolic punishment, but is in fact sentenced to death in the gas chamber. He has his final meal, and even though he can't believe that this has been the outcome, he does accept it at least a little bit stoically, and he dies. But then he wakes up because the punishment was symbolic after all. He was executed. He was truly executed, but then revived and told not to murder anybody again. But there is more to it than that. The story is more complicated than this. The the medics were also able to revive Unger from death as well. And now Unger is in the hospital awaiting his own trial for the murder of Leota. But that matter is also complicated because Leota as well isn't actually dead. Unger did not completely destroy her heart, and in fact, he missed most of it, and so that was an easy repair. What is actually the matter, though, is that Unger damaged Leota's spine. And right now, there's just no surgical technique to repair it, but since she is already cryogenically frozen, she can just wait until such a technique is developed and be repaired, be healed from this this incident. And Moore goes to visit Unger in his hospital room, and Unger is now preparing to be cryogenically frozen as well, because that's going to that's gonna be his fate until Leota's condition is settled one way or the other, at which point he'll be charged either with homicide or attempted homicide and revived for his trial and presumably get this same symbolic punishment that Moore got. He tells Moore that he's sorry, he's not going to ask for forgiveness, but he also doesn't really want to be forgiven anyway. Uh, He draws again here on the imagery of the Flying Dutchman to say that he just cannot be saved. And he says that after his punishment, he intends to sleep until he can awake in a time when he will be truly alone and can die in a kind of exile, not near anyone who he he knows, just be totally alone in the world and, and face his death. And now Unger wishes Moore and Leota well, and he promises that they'll never see him again. To all of this, Moore is really just silent and and passive. Before he leaves, he just says, we've got nothing left to say. We'll talk again some year in a day or so. And I can't imagine facing this myself. What would you possibly say? And and Moore, just as he leaves this room, I mean, my heart is just breaking for him. But we are at the penultimate scene now, so I'm just going to take us home here and we'll wrap things up for the day. Uh, This is our third scene with Mary Maud Mullen, who is speaking with the set's lawyer. The government is very concerned about this this story, as well as some other cases of less sensation and less violence, but still similar uh, similar events. But the concern is that cryogenically freezing people and then reviving them in strange eras is maybe not good for them and might lead to some antisocial behavior. 
Now, Molin knows that this is ridiculous, but they have to do something in order to satisfy the government. Uh, in her terms, what they have to do is first invent a problem and then solve it. And <laughs> The first and cause so, of every business, I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's a real cynical view of government here uh, in the, at the end of this story. And so she proposes that they'll start setting aside one day every year when the set people walk the world and engage with regular people so that they will see the changes happening gradually and not be shocked by them. And that's it. All we have left now is a, a very small coda that I'm, I'm just going to read. This is the, the last scene here of this novella. It was three days before Moore had recovered sufficiently to enter the sleep again. As the prep injection dulled his senses and his eyes closed, he wondered what alien judgment day would confront him when he awakened. He knew, though, that whatever else the new year brought, his credit would be good. He slept and the world passed by. And that is the end of our story. We, we, we don't actually find out what becomes of Leota and the baby. Uh, we don't find out if there is any happiness for anyone in the end. Yeah, and I think that's crucial to the themes that Selassie is developing throughout the story. Um, it it kind of doesn't matter whether or not Leota and the child survive, at least for more or for Unger or for the narrative, because nobody really pays for their crimes anymore. And I, I don't want to say too much about these notions of justice and ethics that are at the end of the story here. They're going to be uh, uh, take up some part of our discussion, which we'll get to in our next episode. What I do want to point out, though, at the end here is that Mary Mon Mullen still uses genuine logs for her fire, but fewer and fewer of them are available. And this statement, I think, should really call into question whether or not the world is actually improving outside the set or what progress even means, which is another question I think we'll have to address. I mean, and this and, and all of that is just apart from this miscarriage of justice nonsense that's taking place at the end of the story. And the solution in general that Mary Mon Mullen proposes at the end of the story is pretty funny as well, because what she describes is just a typical party for the set in like a non-set location and maybe with less booze and maybe more average people can attend. But I doubt that will be the case. Zelazny <laughs> is doing something here with uh, kind of categorization at the end of the story that I find interesting. He's saying basically like, well, if we don't call it a party and we call it something else, but it has all the hallmarks of one and everyone agrees that it's not a party, then it won't be a party and it's going to solve our problem. But the set will still exist to party uh, and nothing will fundamentally change. You know, of course, also at the end of the story, we see Zelazny continuing his critique of this type of transhumanist and posthumanist thinking. Uh, this is not a good idea, turning people into gods or making people to be worshipped by others. You know, Mary Mon Mullen has to decide how to discard people, and she treats them like her China dogs, though they are financially taken care of. I think Zelazny's saying that's simply not enough. There's more to a human being than a good credit score. Finally, the last thing I want to point out before we kind of come out of this episode here is the presence of the book that Unger has closed uh, at, at near his hospital bed. That's going to be that's going to factor into a discussion question about who the narrator of the story is. Uh, a question that was posed to us by our, our really generous patron who commissioned us to do this episode and got us reading Zelazny, which I am extraordinarily grateful for uh, because I've really enjoyed these stories uh, immensely so far. And and on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. 
And as Brandon said, we'll be back in a few days with a discussion of The Graveyard Heart. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. 